If you would, open your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 4. Book of Revelation chapter 4. Today is the first day of the first month of the year 2017. And if you look in the Old Testament, a number of events occurred on the first day of the first month. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 13, By the first day of the first month, Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth, Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. In Exodus 40, then the Lord said to Moses, set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting on the first day of the first month. So the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the first month in the second year. In 2 Chronicles 29, in the reign of Hezekiah, there was a revival of sorts among the people of Judah. They began the consecration on the first day of the first month. And by the eighth day of the month, they had reached the portico of the Lord. For eight more days, they consecrated the temple of the Lord itself, finishing on the 16th day of the first month. In Ezra chapter 7, as they returned from exile, he had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month. And he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was with him. And then in Ezekiel, in a prophetic passage, speaking of the reclamation, if you wish, of the temple, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, In the first month, on the first day, you are to take a young bull without defect and purify the sanctuary. I don't want to make too much of this, but I do find it interesting that each of these events is tied to redemption. Oftentimes, after some catastrophic or spectacular event of some kind, the flood with Noah, the exodus with Moses and the Israelites, apostasy among the people of Judah, and there is a revival. You have the return from exile with Ezra, and then you have a new temple as shown to Ezekiel. And all of these events led to worship. Noah, after he left the ark, sacrificed to God. The tabernacle was set up for sacrifices. The temple under Hezekiah, well, the temple as a system was for sacrifice. The exiles returned to Jerusalem. And why go to Jerusalem? Babylon is, is, is a happening place. Jerusalem at this point is really a nothing place. Well, it is the center of worship, the worship of God. And then you have Ezekiel and a new temple. As we begin a new year, it would do us well, I think in my opinion, to be reminded of a basic truth, that what it means to be a Christian begins with worship. It must begin with worship. In our text today, which is rather extended, bear with me, we will learn about worship. First of all, in Revelation chapter 4, here, in a sense, we are given a peek behind the curtain. Look at verse number 1. And this... After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. John describes what he has seen in the very throne room of God himself as he steps through this open door. We are seeing this through John's eyes as he describes it to us. And what we hear and what we see deal with worshiping the true God the one true God. What John sees is not some remote future. What he sees is the regular life of heaven, if we could put it that way, the worship of God, which is going on all the time. What we see through John's eyes is astonishing, or it should be to us. Uh, 
First of all, John tells us of the one who is worshipped. This is in verses 2 through 6. At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder before the throne. Seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne were what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And then in verses, um, as it goes on, in verse number four, and then six and seven, eight, surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their head. In the second part of verse six, in the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. Verse 7. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth like a flying eagle. Each of the, the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Now this is maybe for us where it gets a little bit strange. Because John is not being literal. I think he's using figures and we have to figure out what it is, in fact, that he's referring to. So why are there 24 elders? Why the number 24? Well, I think the number actually is referred to back in First Chronicles. In First Chronicles 24 and 25, we are told that as they set up the system, there are 24 divisions of priests. In other words, one priest did not serve all year or for his whole life. He served at a certain point, and then he was replaced by someone else. Except for the high priest, you have this rotation of priests who perform the sacrificial rites. There are 24 divisions of these priests. There are also 24 divisions of singers. So when I think a first century Jew would read what John had written here, they would, they would automatically get this. The number 24 to them spoke of priests and of singers in the worship of God. They are the ones who lead worship. But you will notice that they sit on thrones. So that speaks of royalty, of being kings. So these are, if you wish, priest kings. If you go back to Revelation chapter 1, as, as John opens it, he says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests." to serve his God and Father. It's about worship. We have been called by God to worship as he is being worshipped in heaven by these, this representation of 24 priest kings who sit on thrones. Well, what about the creatures, the four creatures? Uh, you know, the 24 elders people might, but the, the creatures where you have an ox and a lion and an eagle and a man, what could this possibly refer to? Well, the number four, I think, speaks of all creation. It is speaking of creatures. And four, the four winds, the four corners of the earth. These are the different creatures. And they're, they're, they're covered with eyes, which speaks of the omniscience of God, that God sees everything, but they are worshiping the God who is everywhere and who sees all. It has been said that these represent different characteristics in creation. That the mightiest among the birds is the eagle, the mightiest among the domestic animals is the bull, the ox here, the mightiest among the wild beasts is the lion, 
and the mightiest among all is man. The four forms, as one writer suggests, indicate whatever is noblest, strongest, wisest, and swiftest in nature. But the point is simply this. Not only do we have these priest kings in heaven that are worshiping God, but all of creation as well. The four living creatures represent creation. The 24 priest kings represent the new creation. They represent the church. And what do they do? They worship God. Um, we may not agree on the 24 elders or the four beasts or the four creatures. You know, people have been arguing about this for centuries. But one thing we will all agree on is that they worship God. That is what they do. Verse number 8. Day and night they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. They worship God. But what does it mean to worship? Well, I think it's seen clearly in verse number 11. You are worthy. It is one who is worthy. We give worship to him. It is acknowledging the worth of someone. We recognize that they are worthy of praise. And this is what we see in chapter 4. Now we come to chapter 5. And we are told even more about worship. John sees a figure on the throne who's holding a scroll. We come to realize that the scroll is God's future purposes, what God is going to do in the future, when the world will be judged as well as healed. The problem is no one is able to open the scroll. And if you look at verse number four, John's reaction is that he weeps. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. God has committed, and sometimes we like this and sometimes we don't like this, but God has committed himself ever since he created the world to work through his creation. I think we would rather have, well, even if you have a bolt of lightning, that's part of creation, but we'd rather have something extraneous, something supernatural to accomplish God's purposes, but we see, in fact, that God works through through his creation, but particularly for those, through those who bear his name. The problem is, we don't always do what we are supposed to do. In the process of doing God's work, we have let him down. And so it looks like, and I think this is why John weeps, it looks like what God wants to do will not happen. His purposes will be thwarted. But then, beside the throne, appears a different kind of animal. And here we are told that there is a lion from the tribe of Judah, and that he is a lamb that looks as though he has been slain. The lion is the image for the Messiah, and the lamb is that which is to be sacrificed. And both of these are combined in Jesus. He who is a lamb and a lion. And how do people, how does John respond? How does the heavenly host respond to what they see in this creature? In a word, they worship. They worship him. Look, if you would, in verse number nine. 
and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchase men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. and They will reign on the earth. And then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Just a side note, in verse number 9, that Jesus has given his blood to purchase men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. People have bewailed the events of the last year because we become more tribal. Tribalism is on the rise. Well, God has people from every tribe. And if you look at verse number 10, he will make them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. That's side note. This is what worship is all about. It is the glad response of praise. It is directed at God the Creator, that's creation, and God the Savior, new creation, the church. This praise comes from creation that recognizes who it is that made them, comes from creation that acknowledges that Jesus has triumphed. This is what is going on in heaven all the time. It is the worship that on the first day of this new year we are joining in. On this Sunday we join in with all creation. There are two principles at least to keep in mind when it comes to worship. And we've talked about this in the past year, but to refresh your memory. The first is we become like what we worship. It's really important. We become like what we worship. Why? Because we worship what we love. In the same way that you can't not love, double negative, you can't not worship. The question isn't whether or not you worship. Everybody worships. The people who are not with us here today, people who don't go to church on Sunday, they are still worshiping. The question is, what do they worship? David Foster Wallace, who is not a Christian, in now, what is now a famous commencement address that he gave, said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Pretty much anything else you worship. Let me start over again. Pretty much everything else you worship will eat you alive. The insidious thing about these forms of worship, money and things, body and sexual allure, is not that they're evil or sinful. It is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. In the scripture we are told about this, that you become like what you worship, but in a negative way. The reality is, if we worship God, then we become like him. We are made in his image. We become more like God as we worship him. But in scripture it's always spoken of in a negative way. In Psalm 115, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. This is worship. This is praise. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. 
but their idols are silver and gold, made by the hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but they cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but they cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but they cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. And then the psalmist writes, Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. In Psalm 135, we read this again. The idols of the nations are silver and gold made by the hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but they cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, nor is there any breath in their mouth. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. If you remember what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, I think it is worth considering in this vein. The worship that is envisioned here in this passage in, in Psalm 115 and 135 is idol worship. Worshiping that which is an idol. I remember years ago in a Bible study, somebody asked me, why do you talk about idols? You know, I, I don't have an image in my house that I bow down to. It isn't necessarily a physical thing. It's something that you set that is higher than yourself. Something that you believe is worthy of praise or is worthy of your adoration. It is something that is greater than yourself and therefore you worship it. As Tim Keller put it, it is the thing you get your identity from. It's what defines you. If you're a fan of a particular celebrity, that defines who you are. That person is your idol. And in a real, though very subtle way, you become like what or who you worship. Which makes sense if you're worshiping something that is greater than yourself. You want to sort of improve yourself. You want to lift yourself up. And so you become like the thing that you worship. The second principle, I'll just mention this and we'll come back to worship. You become like what you worship. Is that if you worship God then you become more human. See, God made us in his image. God made us perfect, Adam and Eve. And then they sinned, and then everything got messed up. Jesus came to reclaim us, to reshape us. And if we worship the true God, then in fact, we become more human. But who is God? Uh, N.T. Wright talks about the time that he was a chaplain a college chaplain at Oxford. He was teaching, but he was also a chaplain. And often he said that some of the undergraduates would come by when they had first arrived, and they would say to him, well, you won't be seeing much of me because I don't believe in God. And he would then ask, and he's like, well, which God is it you don't believe in? Which would somewhat startle them and puzzle them. And they said, well, it's, you know, it's like an old guy in a rocking chair with a beard, uh, looking down, being cross at people, and... Um, you know, sending some people to heaven and others to hell. And Wright would then say, well, I've got great news for you. I don't believe in that God either. See, I think many of us struggle with the issue of worship because we don't have a right view of God. And so worship isn't the most important thing for us. It's what we do on Sunday mornings, but it's not the center of our lives. If you think badly of God, in terms of his grace, his love and mercy. Oh, wait a minute. Those aren't bad things, are they? Well, if you think badly of God in terms of his judgment, ah, okay, there we are. Then God is not someone that is worthy of your worship. 
And worship then simply becomes appeasement. Don't hurt me, please. You know, Rather than saying, you are worthy of worship. Studying the nature of God. Knowing the nature of God. We are supposed to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We are to use our minds. We are to recognize who it is that we are worshiping. I've often been puzzled when I hear people say, usually before a lesson or a sermon or something in a Bible study, when someone will say, um, just before the sermon, we want to worship God, which implies almost a certain mental detachment rather than, okay, before we use our minds, we're going to not use our minds and worship God. Um, There's also the misconception that worship is something that we do. The reality is that God always acts first and we respond in worship. What we've read here in Revelation 4 and 5. God has done something. The Lamb of God has given his life. He has done something and worship is our response. It isn't, okay, let's, let's, let's get this started. What are we going to do? We're going to worship. Where should we start? It is, in fact, a response. Worship is something in which God is acting, and we are as well, but he started it. It's the same way with prayer. Prayer is a response to God. God has spoken to us in the circumstances of our lives, through people, through scripture, God has spoken to us, and we respond. In sickness, if you wish, God is speaking to us, and we respond in prayer and ask for healing. God initiates the process, and so it is in worship. The worship of the church is a matter of divine activity rather than human activity. I spoke, I think, to Tom about this. We begin, if you're here, when we start at the beginning of the service, with I start with the words, we've come together to worship God. And I've been a bit troubled because it almost makes it seem like, here we are, we're going to do this, we're starting something, when in fact it is a response to what God has been doing in our lives and what he has done. In Christian worship, who is the primary actor? If we assume that we are, then we will assume that worship is simply something that we must do. It's an endeavor, an enterprise that we must engage in. And the result is that worship becomes a way for us to express ourselves rather than respond to God. It is as though we are, as a congregation, acting out for an audience of one. We're doing it for God. But if, in fact, God is the primary actor, then when we pray, when we sing, when we give, when we hear the word of God read to us and preached to us, in communion, even in baptism, it is a response to God. God has acted in our lives. He's acted in human history. And we respond. The, the thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand, they, they know what God has done. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. He gave his life. He is worthy to be worshipped. Worship is God's action and our faithful reception of that action. What do they say in their worship? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. 
For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. They go on to say, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. This requires thought, and it is a response to what God has done. So what we need to learn about is what God has done, who he is, what he has done, and then we can, we can praise him, we can worship him more appropriately. N.T. Wright again writes about this. Perhaps one of the reasons why so much worship in some churches at least appears unattractive to so many people is that we have forgotten or covered up the truth about the one we are worshiping. So how do we discover, how do we rediscover, uncover the truth about the God that we worship? We do it in worship. Because it is in worship that we recount the story of creation and new creation. Our first hymn today was, All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing. God is the one who created all things, and we join in with creation. We tell the story of creation. We don't cover up the fact that it's flawed, that it's fallen, that we are sinners. That's why we have the prayer of confession. Worship is not something sentimental. We don't gloss over the ugly parts. It is a recognition of what God has done, how we have screwed things up, and yet through Jesus, things are being redeemed. It's really quite remarkable. We come together and we acknowledge that the creation has gone wrong. It has been corrupted and spoiled. There's a great fault line that goes not simply down the middle of creation, but down the middle of each one of us. But then we think of God's actions in Jesus of Nazareth. And he gave his life that we might have life. Telling the story, rehearsing what God has done, is in fact the heart of Christian worship. That's why we have the reading from the Old Testament and the New Testament. What God has done in the past. And when we have the time for prayer and prayer request, what God has done for us, what we would like for him to do for us or for others that we mention in our prayer request. It is in scripture that we have the story of creation and new creation. Again, this is why we read from scripture every Sunday. It isn't primarily to inform or remind us. It is to celebrate what God has done. This is who God is and this is what he has done. And then from this comes communion, the Lord's Supper. His body was broken and his blood was shed. Being a Christian begins with worship. It means acknowledging that there is someone who is worthy of our praise. It is celebrating that person who is worthy of our praise. It is in scripture that we learn who God is and what he has done. The reality is, without trying to make people feel too guilty, we don't read the scripture, we don't know the scripture as we should. Why don't we? Well, there is laziness. I mean, that is a part of it. I think there's also a sense of familiarity. As you're reading 
I read this before. I, I know this part. We want something new, something exciting. The reality is, it is scripture. It is God speaking to us. One writer put it this way, in that familiarity we have lost sight of something truly important. We forget what a treasure we're sitting on. It is the word of God. There's also a sense of pride, I think, and it is a real problem where we like, well, I know this part. I, I know this part. And it's not, it's not a matter of fact thing. Oftentimes it's a sense of pride. I know scripture rather than scripture speaking to us. Let's assume for a moment that you had somehow memorized all of scripture. Is your memory infallible? It's more than a matter of memory. Is there a sense of wonder? Is there a sense of affection? There is a problem of idolatry as well, that we worship the creature rather than the creator. Being a Christian is not simply a matter of what we have done with our heads. It's not what we've figured out how to live our lives in this, by a certain moral code. This is how I'm going to live because I'm a Christian. And it's not that we've started to enjoy something in common with friends. Then we go to church on Sunday and that's what a Christian does. No, being a Christian is to be one who worships the true God. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's a beginning point always. But particularly on this first day of the first month of this new year, I think we need to be reminded that to be the people of God, to be a Christian, is to be someone who worships God. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you've set aside a day for us to worship you. And yet at the same time, if we would be honest about it, it becomes routine. Something we do every Sunday. And the wonder of it has been lost. In part because we think it begins with us. We're human, we always think it begins with us. Everything begins with us instead of recognizing that you created us, you created the world, and we are to respond in praise. And that Jesus has redeemed us. He gave his life that we might have life. And we are to respond in worship. And in doing this, we are not alone. We join with the heavenly host, who know far better than we do what you have done. And what they do moment by moment, is to worship you, is to praise you. Which is really remarkable because oftentimes we tire of it. But it's because we forget who you are and what you've done for us. We put something else in your place. We're just too busy doing other things. As your people on this first day of a new year, May we recognize the centrality of worship. May we recognize that it all begins with you. And as your people, may we respond as we should.
it's easy enough for us to think that we're here today because we decided to get up and get dressed and come to church rather than recognizing that you called us, you brought us here. And we thank you for that. As we leave this place today, may your spirit and your grace go with us. May we have a sense of your presence throughout the week. And may we respond in worship. May we not take the burden on ourselves of being the initiators, but of being responders who look to you moment by moment, who listen to you, who look at the wonder and the beauty of your creation and respond with praise. Watch over us as we leave this place today and throughout this coming week. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.